0: This is Maine Currents Independent Local News, Views and Culture. I'm Amy Brown, and it's the third Tuesday of the month. So it's time for our final Elections 2020 edition of Maine Currents with guests, Professor Amy Freed, Chair of the Political Science Department at the University of Maine, former State Representative Ralph Chapman, Ann Luther, board member for the League of Women Voters of Maine and host of the Democracy Forum here on WERU, And Will Hayward, Advocacy Program Coordinator for the League of Women Voters. We are recording this via Zoom on Tuesday morning. The Electoral College voted yesterday under heavy security in many states. In Arizona, they had to actually meet in a secret location because of death threats by Trump supporters. That doesn't seem like the right word anymore. It's gone beyond that. But next week... The votes will be, or next the votes will be counted in a joint session of Congress on January 6th. Then Pence has the job of announcing the results. So let's spend some time today talking about what Trump has already tried to do to overthrow the results of the election and what he and his supporters may try next. I'm gonna start with Amy Freed. She has been reading some of the briefs and decisions from some of the cases that, uh, Trump and his supporters have attempted in court so far. So can you give us an overview? Last I heard, there have been over 30.
1: Oh, yeah, no, it's more than that. It's certainly about, it's around about double that, um, at least the decisions that have come out. So, uh, and in fact, just yesterday, the, Trump filed another lawsuit Against New Mexico, despite the fact that you know of course the electoral votes were counted by New Mexico already, and Biden won uh, pretty overwhelmingly and you know there's a there's a big variety of of claims that are being made uh, a lot of them are really not saying anything at all about fraud uh, they don't really bring up fraud, so you have this tendency for someone like a Rudy Giuliani to give a press conference, say there's a lot of fraud. And then when he goes into court, he says, he doesn't either doesn't bring it up or if he's asked, he says, no, you know, not that, you know, it's not a fraud case. That's what he said in a Pennsylvania case explicitly to a judge. This is not a fraud case. Uh, And in another case heard within the last week in Wisconsin, the Trump attorneys and the, you know, the state stipulated a set, a set of facts in front of the judge. In other words, they they presented a document saying, this is what we, th- we believe has happened. And they didn't challenge, um, you know, the anything in terms of any kind of, you know, statement that there was fraud. So, you know, a lot of times they're not even really bringing bringing up fraud uh, when they have the opportunity to do it and when they claim that there is there really isn't the evidence to support it it doesn't pass the straight face test a lot of judges are throwing these things out these are both at state and federal district court level um, and so you know that even though a lot of people believe that there's fraud you know there's a pretty significant percentage of the, of Republican voters who believe that there's fraud. that's not actually uh, proven in any way, in many cases, not even really being alleged in court.
2: I, I think it's worth explaining why it would not have been alleged in court. Isn't it this the is case Ralph Chapman. That if a uh, lawyer in, in a court makes a claim that's a false claim, they themselves risk being disbarred? Isn't that the, an issue? Uh,
1: Absolutely. They could be sanctioned in various ways. They can be disbarred. A number of people have suggested there there could be sanctions for bringing frivolous lawsuits, which really a lot of these are at this point. I mean, it's pretty clear these things are not going anywhere. I'd also point out that a lot of the other claims that don't have to do with fraud are uh, questions about processes used by states, or in some cases, parts of a state that actually are being used statewide that really could have been raised ahead of time. Like normally, if you don't like the way an election is being conducted, you have to you should challenge it beforehand uh, because people are going to vote on the basis of certain things being acceptable. For example, the very basic process of being able to vote by mail. Um, If you don't think that vote by mail is constitutional, which is what has been the claim in a number of cases, uh, you know, that a pencil, for example, Pennsylvania's had vote by mail, I believe for several years, a very broad vote by mail statute, Uh, you know, and people went and voted on that basis. How can you go in and say, we want to throw out all of these (laughs) ballots? People went and voted in good faith. They used that system. And that's what you know that's what these uh trump lawyers are have been arguing for also the uses of drop boxes i mean you have to bring those cases ahead of time you can't let people go ahead put their ballot in a drop box and then later say we're not going to we're not going to accept those ballots and you know that's what's been coming up in a number of these cases i mean there are arguments about constitutionality and you know whether it's consistent with the state's election laws are themselves often wrong, but besides that, you 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 have the problem of uh, you know this sort of after the fact kind of claim, which is I think most people would consider to be patently unfair. It's like anything else; you can't you know have some kind of any kind of contest and change the or you know sporting. Uh, event and then change the rules later and apply those. And Amy, aren't
3: they in some of these cases trying to invalidate only the presidential election using these methods, not the down ticket outcomes with which they're fine.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's obviously absurd. If you think the system itself is unconstitutional and all those ballots should be thrown out, then your own ballot should be thrown out. And, there were points in this process where if that had been done, well, first of all, let's say in Pennsylvania, the, the legislature voted overwhelmingly to pass this broad and absentee balloting, um, including Repu- you know Republicans, overwhelmingly, if not unanimously, I don't recall, but certainly overwhelmingly. And yet people who had voted for it, were making those arguments and only asking for the presidential ones to be thrown out. And at that point, what they were also asking for was that you know they wanted the legislators, the Pennsylvania legislature, to appoint electors. But if in fact you had thrown out the entire set of people who had been elected, there wouldn't have been enough. There wouldn't have been a Pennsylvania legislature to pick. So it was really internally contradictory. And we talked. We've talked different times on this show about this idea of the electors being chosen by legislatures. And you know, I made the point that in the past, a lot of times that you know we've got to go back to the early 19th century. But you had a lot of states where that is exactly how electors were picked. They were picked by state legislatures. But again, you run into this problem of you can't change the rules after the fact. So the Constitution mm-hmm. says, well. It's up to state legislatures to decide how to pick your electors, how to select electors. But we have federal law that says you can't change that, you know, because otherwise that's also unfair. People are operating under a particular system and and you can't, you know, go in and change the system afterwards. Um, I think if there's the laws that if there's like really an extreme emergency, like, you know, if we had, I don't know, major earthquakes or terrorist attacks or something, I don't know, maybe there'd be a way to get around that. But ultimately, you can't, you, that's, that's unacceptable to just change the system after, after an election has been held. Um, and so, yeah.
4: So, Amy, can I ask you, I know you've read the You've read um, quite a few of these court decisions, and I've I've seen a few of them. I think I would say some of the spiciest passages flowing around from some of the judges' decisions. And would you agree that part of the reason that these have been slapped down, you know, so resoundingly in court is that um, you know the specific remediation being asked for is just I think. Agree. Just like I read some of these decisions and the judges seem personally offended that the you know solution being proposed is to simply throw out all the votes I've seen some say like this is the most extreme remediation I've ever seen asked for in court so like even if there was a was a valid underpinning there would have to be some sort of different solution than what's being proposed by the campaign.
1: Absolutely and you know in a relatively recent one involving Wisconsin what the uh Trump side was asking for was to throw out two counties that were uh that are very highly democratic and also have lots and lots of black voters the uh mil- where the county where Milwaukee is and and Madison so you know uh just the, there's a racial component there. So yeah, let's, let's take a system, we've the system is wrong statewide, but that's only throw out the ballots in these particular counties, that's absurd, uh, as it is also absurd to do it for the entire, the entire state. And just, you know, because uh, it, it is really, it's really something, and, a, and what's interesting also is the incredible sloppiness in some cases, from some of these attorneys like Sidney uh, Powell, who's, uh, you know, really has these big conspiracies about voting machines, switching votes and so, She's, her briefs often have spelling errors, uh, like on the front page, misspelling states, misspelling the name of a state secretary of state, just this incredible sloppiness. And I, this didn't get really any attention, but one of the Arizona cases the judge said, "You know, we've been, we've, we've had this, um, this quote in one of these briefs that supposedly applies, you know, of a case that supposedly applies to this situation. But a, the case doesn't apply to the situation. It was about referenda, not about presidential electors, and that." quote does not appear in the case you know the judge said i've read it i read over the decision three times the brief says it's on page four it's not on page four it's not anywhere so you know there's just i i think that sort of shows the disdain really for the whole system of justice all of these things Agreed. Break, you know and uh, it, it's really kind of it's really kind of offensive i i have said yeah, I mean, just in everyday life, anything you would do that sloppy, people would not take seriously. And I, it's one of those things that I'll even say in, you know, to students, if you want people not to just toss something you wrote and to really look at it carefully, don't make dumb little mistakes. I mean, we all make typos sometimes but the degree of incredible sloppiness is is really wild. Or the, um, I don't wanna be rambling on too long, but there's so much here. Like one of the people who was supposedly an expert that the that Sydney Powell has on, on who she says uh, worked for military intelligence, it turns out didn't work for military intelligence. He had started on that program and he washed out very, very quickly. He didn't get past the you know the elementary step of it so he she's misstated to a court the credentials of a witness that is a pretty serious thing that is lying to a court and that is the kind of thing that you you could lose your law license over so let me
0: just say this sounds a little bit like the keystone cops in the courtroom so do they actually do you think i mean we don't we have no way of knowing what they actually think but what do you all think is the goal here? Is it just red meat for their followers who won't pay attention to the particulars? Is it a fundraising ploy as Trump has raised, you know, over $100 million from people who think they're supporting these court cases that he says are going to win? Is it possible that they actually are at a level that they don't understand that when these cases are being thrown out with judges that Trump appointed himself presiding, that it's time to just take their ball and go home. What What is motivating this? What do you all think about that? And what will the political fallout be for the future?
3: I mean, I think it's just feeding an outrage bubble and whether That's the, the right purpose of that is Fundraising or pandering to the base or whatever it is. I mean, there was an article in, where did I see that? Was it in the New York Times or something about how you can get addiction to outrage just like you can get addiction to other um, sort of emotional and uh, chemical substances? And I, th- I think there's a bit of that going around. Um, you, you know, and Amy and I had a little conversation on Facebook the other day about civic and institutional virtue. And there's a little bit of that at play on the other side, too, where a number of the high-profile law firms who have professional ethics and who have standards of conduct have refused to take part in these cases because they know they're completely bogus. So, I mean, I think pretty much everybody knows this is just reality TV. Um,
4: Mm -hmm. And just... Go ahead, Ralph.
2: I think it's worth bringing up the word sedition. Uh, Sedition is an incitement of resistance to lawful authority, and especially with respect to the Texas lawsuit that was joined by uh, uh, a dozen and a half other states, as well as a 100 and some Republican uh, Congress people, House of Representatives. I I think we have to talk about sedition. I think that it it gets to a level beyond just upset with a, an election outcome, uh, beyond uh, um, pandering to uh, a, a base of supporters. I, I think it gets to a, a place where it's so damaging to our democracy that we have to think about what the methods are for protecting the democracy from seditious acts. And, uh, the, the word sedition, or the form of the word sedition, seditious, was in fact used by as a response in the Supreme Court of the United States brief uh, uh, submitted by the states that Texas identified as uh, having faulty election systems. Uh, Let me just dis- interrupt
0: you real quick, Ralph. I want you to continue on that thought. But just for anyone listening who's wondering what the definition is and doesn't want to stop to Google, I did. Uh, it's a it's conduct or speech inciting people to rebel against the authority of a state or monarch is the definition that I come up with. And just a quick. Well, uh, certainly quick.
3: the incitements to violence. I mean, the fact that that electors in many states had to meet in undisclosed locations or had to meet with um, security protection. I mean, that exactly kind of.
1: I I, I mean, going back to the the purpose, I mean, I think one of the major reasons is just to delegitimize Biden in the eyes of uh, Trump supporters. And it's kind of a version of birtherism, uh, the same, I mean, not really, it's not birtherism, but they both are motivated by the same sort of thing. To say this person's not properly there, that will help raise money for Republicans, that will bring people to the polls, uh, at least at certain points, um, and you know it's perhaps bring Trump back if he wants to run again or people that he supports. I I, I think there's a number of purposes, but it's really mostly de- delegitimizing. And I think when it comes to the sedition thing, I don't think like bringing lawsuits is sedition. It's that's part of the, our system, even if they're absurd. There should be sanctions in some points. Um, but yeah, certainly like any kind of violence, any threats, Michigan has been really a, a bad situation, you know, previously even with Governor Whitmer being threatened um, and, you know, there was a plot perhaps to kidnap her. But, you know, what, one of the things that strikes me is just the, it's beyond hypocrisy, but it, I'll do use the word hypocrisy of of some of these, individuals and these cases i mean the texas case is just so outrageous in that regard this is a state that people go around at least they used to saying don't mess with texas so don't tell texas what to do we're going to do our thing and yet texas is going out and trying to tell other states how to run their elections and making claims that they're that those other states election laws were not followed even though the courts in those states determined that they were followed i'm going
0: to jump in here real quick and then i'm going to toss it back to ralph because i don't think he got to finish his thought about sedition when i jumped in with the uh, definition we all weighed in on that so i want to go back to ralph real quick but i do want to just let listeners know you're listening to main currents this is the final elections 2020 edition and this was recorded earlier tuesday My guests are Professor Amy Freed, the Chair of the Political Science Department at the University of Maine, who you just heard from. Former State Representative Ralph Chapman, who you're going to hear from next. Uh, Board member for the League of Women Voters and host of the Democracy Forum here in WERU, Ann Luther. And Will Hayward, who is the Advocacy Program Coordinator for the League of Women Voters. So uh, back to Ralph, if you wanted to finish that thought before we start talking more about this.
2: Well, I, I think that I've said this before on the program that the people are not responsible for maintaining our constitutional democracy. Uh, governmental officials are have that responsibility. So, as upset as I may be that 70 million people uh, uh, overlooked the, the failings of President Trump and voted to reelect him, uh, I'm I'm far more disturbed by Sitting Congress people, uh, joining a lawsuit, a seditious lawsuit from Texas. Um, and, and, and there's apparently no way to hold them accountable. I, I've, I've been trying to reread the 14th Amendment to the Constitution to understand what, what actual techniques are available for preventing seditious lawmakers from, from being seated in Congress, for example. Uh, I had a little tiny bit of experience with this in the state legislature, with respect to questions of impeachment and what's that about. And I learned very quickly that most of my legislative colleagues were not really aware of that responsibility that officials have to the Constitution and, and, and how that plays out. But uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll end it there. But um, mm-hmm. it's a it's a matter of concern.
4: Mm-hmm. Just to briefly um, offer my view on the the Texas lawsuit in particular, I it just leaves such a sour taste in my mouth of that in particular as kind of how this um, you know pre electoral college meeting how the litigation wrapped up on just in my mind you know I think it was simply the most outrageous case out of all of the cases we saw brought and it was the one that you had. 130 or so, you know, elected members of the U.S. House of Representatives signing on to. um, And, you know, I think a lot of this, the litigation, at least until this point, had been, you know, largely relegated to this corner of the campaign with, you know, the legal team working on it, but without a lot of, um, you know, elected officials across the country explicitly joining in, and then to have this case brought by the Attorney General of Texas, who, by the way, has been under indictment in the state for five years and is currently under investigation federally. Um, So, you know, there's some suggestion he's fishing for a pardon, but um, to just bring this atrocious case, which got, I think, you know, We said 130 U.S. representatives, and then I think it was about 20 state attorney generals. It's just like the biggest symbolic, you know, not impactful in terms of what the lawsuit um, brought. It got, you know, laughed out of the Supreme Court, I would say, instantly. But um, just in terms of the biggest symbolic blow to democracy that you could strike right before the Electoral College meets, um, yeah, just... I, I don't. It it's hard, you know. We will move forward. We'll have a new president in January. We know all of this is going to happen, but um, we do. We just ended on one of the worst notes possible. I think of this this interregnum.
1: And I'd say, you know, that case, the brief that they they that they wrote from Texas, it manages to shove in all kinds of unproven conspiracies into it. So they're kind of creating this record for people who will believe things uh, went very wrong. I mean, it, it, inclu- it includes it it does include a lot of fraud claims, along with the other things about, you know, not telling about how states should run things and they shouldn't have drop boxes and all of that. And there was a very good reply brief. Well, there were four reply briefs from each of the four states. I can't remember which one I liked the best, but. You know, a lot of those were, were very strong. I think also the Biden campaign also put one in. But, you know, so there's very good replies to them. But, you know, a lot of these things are just going to be picked up and shared, including there's, um, where where was this? Which state was this? It was uh, one, re- uh, something recently that's supposedly a report, I think it's in Arizona, about voting machines and vote switching, which like really is not a serious report. Uh, you know, I mean, this whole thing with the Dominion voting machines, we do know there are, you know, to take it very seriously, some issues with some voting machines. Uh, this, it's not as if voting machines are perfect, and there, there are some who that, that could be hacked. But in Georgia, uh, there was a hand recount. There were three recounts, but one of them was a hand recount. If the ballots were, bar- were not registered correctly in the machines, that would have been found by counting them by hand, right? So obviously that disproves that there was a problem with the voting machine. If the hand recount and the machine recount match up, I don't think it matched up 100%, but there's always some error here and there. It's just not enough to make any difference. It's a small error. And all those other things who are, you know, really have not been proven in Pennsylvania, the the uh, all these statements about Dominion voting machines, but then they challenge the ballots and in Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, which don't use those machines. So, you know, the details do not match up, but if you're really in a mindset that you think that was fraud, none of this really matters. The word that's been coming to my mind is a is a kind of social science jargony word, but if I explain it, you know, it's pretty clear what it means. It's the, the, the views about that people have who believe in some mass conspiracy, they're non-falsifiable. A falsifiable statement is something that can be disproved. So if I was going to do some research and I was going to have a hypothesis or any scholar or, you know, scientists, whatever, doctor, you know, whatever it happened to be, you had a hypothesis, you have to have a way to disprove it to show that it's not correct. Otherwise it's a very bad hypothesis because then you can never know whether it's right or wrong. The views of these people who believe in these conspiracies are completely non-falsifiable. There's nothing that they will listen to. Either they don't pay attention to the details or they're, or they able will, by, by simply presenting an argument against their point of view, they will say that that means you're a member of the deep state or the establishment or both. And therefore you can't believe what is being said.
0: Well, in the and micro that, level, that's called delusion. <laughs> But yeah, with, seriously, yeah. within psychiatry, within mental health, that's called delusions—a fixed, false right. belief. The more you try to argue with someone about it, the more they just become entrenched.
1: Right, and there's, you know, we've had this, this you know, many of us have had this discussion over years, and the general public about what do you do when there's not a shared understanding of reality and a, not a shared sense of facts. I mean, it's one thing to have a disagreement based on values. Uh, people see the same set of facts differently sometimes people highlight different facts within reality that's what's more important to them some side of an issue but this is just really the wholesale repudiation of anything that doesn't go with your own point of view because it doesn't go with your own point of view and so it's really hard to understand and maybe you know Amy Brown from the psychological side, is there a way to answer what with, with facts that people are are going to believe i don 't think so I think they just will reject it but these kinds of I still think it's worth discussing for people who don 't know one way or another aren't paying that close attention people who really want to understand it we should be bringing these facts out uh, you know so that the 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 side of delusion
3: doesn't dominate i want to talk about another sort of aspect of what's going on in the transition right now which um i've heard referred to as salting the earth which was a a, you know a war tactic going back many 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 centuries when people would conquer other lands they would salt the earth so that nothing would ever grow there again and the conquered lands would be inhabitable. Um, And some of that, I feel like, is going on in the transition between the Trump administration and the Biden administration. At first, there was the unwillingness to establish the transition team or to brief the Biden people on what was going on. I I believe still there is not an open communication between the Biden people and the Department of Defense. In some of the other circumstances, the briefings have um, had... Trump loyalists in the room so that the people conducting the briefings are afraid to be honest about what is actually going on in their departments. And um, also, I believe the Trump administration has taken steps to make some political appointees permanent government, um, have permanent civilian government status so that they can't be fired or let go as a normal political appointee would mean. So that means those departments are going to have Trump staffers in them, even after the Biden um, administration comes in. This all, I I wonder what you guys think. Doesn't this seem like sort of salting the earth to just make sure the Biden administration cannot be 100% effective?
4: I... I mean, the one, to me, the big, one of the big, you know, there have been many norms, I think, broken over the past several years, Um, but I think the big norm that is being broken right now is, you know, the kinds of policy being conducted in the lame duck, and I think we actually saw this kind of foreshadowed in 2018, you know, where a lot of states where the party of the governorships which voted to strip powers during the lame duck um, and it really kind of set off this violation of this norm of you know not setting new policy during the lame duck period but I think we see it continuing right now in a couple of other ways that come to mind right now one is some areas of foreign policy um, we have the current administration rushing to for instance you know recognize Moroccan sovereignty over Western Sahara which the US hasn't done for decades and decades and you know it's not something that can be easily unwound you know withdrawing troops at a faster at a faster pace than I think any military advisor thinks is reasonable um, just lots of actions that can't be undone and represent new shifts in policy I also think of the um, federal death penalty being carried out at just a really You know striking rate um right now because they know that that's going to be reversed the instant um biden's in office so that's you know it's just another thing that i don't know if we'll be able to claw back after this but the setting of new policy during the lame duck is certainly something that concerns me
0: so where if you were trump or one of his supporters uh moving forward between now and inauguration day where are the other weak points that you might try to exploit and can we expect just theatrics on january 6th with with pence presiding over the joint uh counting of the votes or are there other points more lawsuits that we might see what what would you expect to see i mean i read
3: some speculation this morning that um that that Barr resignation was timed to detract from Biden's speech it came out like just right before his speech was to be telecast and the speculation was also that Mm -hmm. Barr's resignation now foretells some things that even Barr could not
1: Mm. stomach
3: um coming down the road so that does sort of make me the
1: pardons
3: wonder what right
1: and I I think this is you know it Exceedingly unlikely, maybe I'm an optimist, but you do have from some quarters uh, statements that Trump should like do something really extra legal like declare martial law. There was a uh, just very recently a state senator who's in, in Virginia who's planning on running for governor who said that um, that should happen, that Trump should follow what General Michael Flynn you know who uh was pardoned by trump that that his suggestion that trump declare martial law um, i don't I really don't think that could declare happen or martial that could so how what
0: would
1: that just the... to just to, to take over the country and you know and what they also often say is and then have another set of elections that would be fair elections um, but you know I, I mean that to me seems really. I don't know. Uh, very unlikely. It's obviously really an outrageous sort of thing, but we could have more social unrest. I don't think legally there's really any route anymore. I don't think the Senate once has any desire, the Republican Senate has any desire to uh, do anything right now, although I wouldn't be surprised if a few senators you know, make a little noise. It seems to be coming more from some House Republicans that they could try to It's just coming over
3: the RSS feeds now that McConnell congratulated Biden on his victory, saying it's over and the Electoral College has spoken. Wow. Um, So I think you're right. The Senate does not have much appetite for this any longer.
1: Right, right. But I mean, I think some of the states, it'll different, you know, but it doesn't really matter. You know, like, that's another thing is some of these states yesterday, the Republicans who would have been the electors voting in the electoral college tried to, uh, you know, go into uh, state capital or they did their own events outside and they say they're transmitting their own, their slates. But it doesn't matter because under the law, the slates have to be certified by the secretary of state governor. I mean, if you recall two years ago when Governor LePage sent in the, um, paperwork, the certification for Jared Golden winning. He sent it in. He did it. He, he filled his responsibility, although he did write on it, stolen election, but he sent it in. So it still, it still counts. It doesn't really matter uh, what, you know, I could send in paperwork. I could get five people in the state to say I am the was elected president. It's completely meaningless.
0: Ralph, you look like you wanted to jump in here. So before we change the subject,
2: well, Timothy Snyder uh, wrote the, a book that I think is very pertinent, called *On Tyranny*, which describes how democracies fail and what the what what the dissolution of democratic institutions, what role that plays in in, in uh, the demise of democracies. And I I think it's very worthwhile to read it and reread his book because we have clearly been in a in this situation for. Uh, Uh, some period of time. And and we're now speculating on how could it be worse? And yes, it could be worse. And uh, we have to think about how to protect the democracy, uh, uh, both right now, as well as potential similar uh, threats to it in in the future. And to prevent a, a future coup, or a current day coup, uh, I think is something that we need to pay attention to. I, I think education is a strong part of that. Education is a populist to understand how government works, what its purposes are, and how it has to function um, and and how it can be destroyed. I think that's worth uh, worth educating people on, and I think that the public needs to pay more attention to what I'll call public nonviolent direct action. Uh, schemes for responding to extra legal uh, uh, democracy killing types of activities that someone may engage in.
3: Well and I mean like I know Amy's got a new book on um, distrust of government and you know this whole thing about undermining trust in government and I was just talking about the you know using the word deep state to mean the professional civil service is another way of delegitimizing the professional civil service and making it harder and harder for people to trust government or believe government is working on their behalf. It's just, um, it's been a long time coming. It's reaching a culmination, it seems to me now. I hope it's not going to get any worse, but it is very, very
0: Well, if there is a deep state, they are much less effective than I used to believe that they are, because how would this be possibly happening if they were so powerful? Amy, tell us about your book, Professor Uh, Amy Freed.
1: Yeah, this book I've been working on for a long time. The main idea is that distrust in government is used strategically for various purposes, and those are to try to help win elections, to build and maintain organizations to shift power away from institutions that you control towards ones that you do control, like, you know, away from Congress towards the presidency and also to wage policy battles. And even though it has a, a historical part that really starts in the beginning of the United States, you know, around <laughs> the revolution and such, there's a there's a one big, great big, you know, historical sweep chapter, The It really focuses on the conservative movement, Republican presidents, and Republican uh, national legislatures from Reagan through Trump. And what's the name?
0: Um,
1: It's called uh, The War Against Government. And let's see, I think the second part is something like the weaponization of distrust from Reagan to Trump. Um, And it's with Doug Harris, who's a professor at Loyola University, Maryland. And it'll be out this spring with it uh, from Columbia University Press. And even though it's from an academic press, we wrote it in a way for uh, the general public. Um, And, and, uh, you know, we think it's going to be a good book for the general public to read. Well, let me just
0: jump in again and remind listeners that they're listening to Maine Currents on WERU. Just heard from Professor Amy Free, chair of the political science department at University of Maine. We also have with us Ann Luther, board member for the League of Women Voters of Maine, Ralph Chapman, former state representative, and also uh, Will Hayward, advocacy program coordinator for the League of Women Voters. So uh, let's spend some time talking about what needs to be done. You know, some political commentators are saying that the system of government is surviving kind of by the seat of its pants right now, that this is a lot of these Uh, things that have been done to undermine the processes of voting and so forth uh, have have really tested things to the core. When you had electors yesterday having to vote in secret undisclosed locations because their lives have been threatened, that really underscores that. Uh, One of the, the things that is under discussion is the possibility that the president could try pardoning himself. It hasn't been tried before. It's questionable whether or not that's possibly legal, but it seems that if a president can, at the end of their term, pardon themselves and everyone else that they're friends with and all of their cronies and their family members, then there really isn't much deterrent from them doing whatever they want while they're in office. So would that be a place to start By And what would that take? Is that something that would need a constitutional amendment to make sure that they can't pardon themselves from federal crimes? And what else needs to be done to tighten things up to make sure that we are not so easily subject to someone who decides they want to be president for life, who has the type of ego that just can't accept defeat or has any other kind of ulterior motives to just... uh, have staged some kind of coup so that they can stay in power. A constitutional
2: amendment uh, s- certainly can can do some things. Uh, it, sh- short of that, it's, the, the Supreme Court of the United States can, can make a decision about what the meaning of the current constitution is. And consequently, uh, it would seem to me that trying to go for a constitutional amendment comes after the failure of the Supreme Court. Uh, I, I expect that it Trump pardons himself, it would be a Supreme Court case, and and we'll see whether the Supreme Court would uphold his right to do so. Um, And if they did, then I think a constitutional amendment would certainly be in order.
0: Well, then does the Supreme Court issue really need to be revisited in terms of not allowing it to be stacked and people there for life? Because if you have someone who was able to appoint three Supreme Court justices and in the future, I mean, talking about beyond this time, if that continues to be the case, is that problematic? Do they need to have some other kind of mechanisms in place for the Supreme Court to keep it more balanced politically? Lots
3: of reformers are talking about 18-year terms um, for Supreme Court justices. Some are talking about expanding the number of seats on the Supreme Court, but that is a little bit more of an extreme um, view. And that really can be done legislatively. That does not require a constitutional amendment. But lots of people are talking about that 18 year term limit so that they're not lifetime appointments. Um, Well, the
1: 18 years, I mean, that would require a constitutional amendment because the Constitution says you serve, you know, upon good on good behavior, which basically means you can only be removed for uh, anything that falls under the impeachment clause. Mm hmm. But you mm-hmm. certainly can change the number of courts. You can expand the court. You can limit the scope of the court in some way. You know, the 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 Congress can designate that. I mean, I'm really not at all though optimistic about a lot of this happening um, either route necessarily. I mean, hopefully there are some things that people could agree on. But at most at this point in January, Democrats would have. 50 senators (laughs) that's with winning the two georgia races which may or may not happen i mean it's possible
4: amy (laughs) you mentioning that um and you know mentioning i think that kind of gets to what i think the issue is is that in all three branches of our government in the way that they are Selected and appointed, they do have inherently undemocratic elements to them, um, and you know the challenge of how to open those up and to repair that is so deep that you know structural change is the hardest thing to rally people behind. I think, um, and so you know you have a Senate where every state gets two two senators regardless of size, which you know em- empowers smaller states that you know were designed you know. The Dakota Territory was split up, so you know Republicans could have extra senators in the 1890s, um, and so you have these historical legacies. Just on top of other legacies, you have the Electoral College, which um, I am less confident in than ever uh, this year. Um, but it you know it goes across it goes across our whole government, and we need to think about how to have truly representative um, you know representative bodies.
1: Right. And, you know, Congress can admit new states. That's not any, you know, that's not a constitutional issue at all. That's possible. Also, even have it adding to the number of people in the House of Representatives. I mean, probably a lot of people think, oh, gee, why would we want to do that? But, you know, then uh, you, you know, I think it's harder to, well, you're still going to have gerrymandering, but I think you'll still get probably better representation overall from from the House. And if you expand, and by the way, if you bring in new states, of course, you have more electoral votes, too. And so, the League
3: is supporting H.R. 1. We hope for passage of H.R. 1, which is a big reform package, and it has already passed the House. We hope for it to pass the Senate. would do some of the things that you're already talking about, Amy, including repairing the, um, Net, the Voting Rights Act and so, some other things. So,
1: that's I mean, important, definitely. Yeah. So. Let's take a few
0: minutes before we wrap up to talk about uh, local politics and what's happened here. I'm going to send that over to uh, Ralph to, to start us off with that discussion. And then we want to also leave a few minutes. Sorry about that. At the end to uh, discuss, just give you each a couple minutes to discuss your impressions over all of this election and where we go from here. So uh, Ralph, Lead us off with that. Where do things stand? I saw that the legislature was meeting in the Augusta Civic Center, and I read that that's been extremely expensive. So they may not be doing that on a regular basis, but uh, yeah, take it from there.
2: So the uh, the new legislature is uh, convened uh, the first Wednesday of December, and um, they have chosen their leaders, and they have uh, chosen the uh, constitutional officers, uh, one of whom was a state senator. That is former state senator um, uh, uh, Shanna Bellows is, is now the secretary of state. And for that reason, that's a vacancy in the state senate, which is uh, uh, the two candidates that are running. Um, uh, the Republican is uh, Earl McCormick, the former state senator and former House member as well. And uh, Craig Hickman, uh, a former uh, state representative uh, with whom I worked uh, in when I was in the legislature. Uh, I'll make a personal uh, opinion observation here, which is, in my opinion, Craig Hickman is the best qualified candidate for any elected position in government. And I've, I've said that uh, before. I'll, I'm happy to say it publicly uh, a very impressive uh, um, uh, public servants um, with a, a wide range of uh, talent and capabilities. But um, uh, aside from that, the committee's assignments were just uh, just announced in the last uh, day or so, and uh, that uh, begins to shape uh, uh, who is going to be reviewing what types of legislation come up uh, in this session. There were so, some
3: interesting points of dissatisfaction with some of those committees, weren't there?
2: Yes, uh, uh, one of the uh, state representatives was sufficiently unhappy with his assignment that he left the uh Republican Party and became uh, a libertarian uh the first libertarian uh, member of uh, the state legislature. Um and another uh state senator uh, was unhappy with his assignment and was trying to get it changed. Um uh, uh, uh just to point out, uh, many legislators are unhappy with their assignments. Um, I was unhappy with all of my assignments, <laughs> for example. And the reason that I got assignments today that, that were not anything that I wanted is because uh, I was not playing the loyalty game. Uh, in, order to, in order to get an assignment that you want, you have to, in essence, uh, be 100% loyal to the party leadership. And that's one of the one of the real problems in politics is that loyalty to party has now become more important than loyalty to the constitution or loyalty to the government or heaven forbid loyalty to the people.
1: What do you think? Oh, I was gonna ask if anyone had any sense of like, what was going on with that with Rick Bennett? I mean, this is somebody who he's been the head of the main Republican party. He was a Senate president, but he's very unhappy, and you know went- pu- public with it you know his unhappiness i I really have no idea myself because you know I have no special information but is it does it say anything about the re- in his case about you know the place of a moderate in the Republican party or, or is it just nothing in in particular you I know maybe answer that in one minute before we move on. <laughs>
3: i mean it's hard it's hard it's hard to know he clearly ran for office because of his interest in the cmp corridor and he wanted to be on the utilities commission in order to work on that um you know the president the and the minority leader in the senate is from a different wing of the party, whether that had an impact on the committee selection, who knows? But trying to do those committee selections is like a chessboard, and you move one, and it impacts something else. And trying to get everybody where they belong is hard. So, um, you know, who who knows? I, we are hearing—I don't know if you're hearing—also, Ralph, that um, one option that's being considered is for the full legislature really not to meet for the first few weeks and to have only the committees meeting um, and they'll be obviously meeting remote using Zoom conferencing. Um, there's some speculation that having testimony by Zoom is going to make it so, so much easier for people to testify that the hearings are going to go long and people are going to come from all over the country to testify on these bills. Um, so who who knows what that's going to look like. It's going to be a scramble.
0: Well, it'll make timekeeping easier because the moderator can just mute them when they're three minutes through. <laughs> Um, So, yeah, that's all the time we have for that uh, discussion, because we are just about out of time, and I do want to give you all a chance to give your final thoughts as we uh, wrap up our final Elections 2020 edition. It's been great having you all here with me. Most of you have been here right from the start, from the beginning of 2020, and uh, the rest of you have been here at least several times, so I appreciate that. And and I also want to give you a little bit of extra time to talk about Democracy Forum, because these kinds of discussions, but perhaps uh, more academically focused with all experts, including Anne being the moderator, happen on the Democracy Forum year round on WERU. So actually, Anne, why don't you go first? Uh, if you each take uh, maybe two, two and a half minutes, I think we'll have enough time for everyone.
3: So my, I mean, my reflections, I'm a half full type of person, right? And so the things that I'm looking at are, one, it. It did kind of hold together. It took a a massive civic mobilization, huge voter turnout. But um, people spoke, right? And civic virtue and institutional virtue stopped the worst disasters from happening. And so we are still kind of on track. You know, I'm very concerned that we're still a very divided nation. Trump got more voters than anybody in history, except for Biden, so he still has a lot of support. So that leads to the Democracy Forum coming up in January, and we're going to have Jim Fishkin and Larry Diamond from Stanford University talking about deliberative democracy and the um, exercise they did in the fall of 2019 where they bought 526 people from across the demographic spectrum all different kinds of political views together for a big convention workshops discussions and on the most contentious issue in American politics and they found people were able to have a conversation and were able to change their minds Mm -hmm. and um, so uh, there's a an open of hope and we're gonna be joined by another WERU host. Um Steve Wessler is gonna also be a guest on that show. So it should be a good one and that's coming up the third Friday in January.
0: Great. Thanks, Ann. Uh who wants to go next? That was Ann Luther. Uh Will Hayward, also League okay. of Women Voters. You just unmuted yourself so you're up.
4: <laughs> All right. Um so when I think back on this election, um there's you know I think there's two tracks. I feel really, really good about Maine. Maine really impressed me this election cycle. We had, you know, by all accounts, a very, you know, fair, transparent, accessible election. And I'm just, you know, I'm so proud of the work of everyone in the state to make that happen. And I'm really excited for our new Secretary of State, Shana Bellows, to, you know, continue that proud tradition. Um, But when I look nationally, I do really really feel concerned I mentioned the Texas Supreme Court case um, as just like a really I think a really ominous omen for the future and then I also think about um, I I don't know I just I feel really uncertain because I think the thing is we know that if the election had been like really close I think there's There's a pretty fair evidence from the litigation we saw that there would have been an attempt to flip the results um, through the legal process. And it wasn't close enough for that to hold up, but um, it leaves me concerned. And uh, the need to be vigilant is that much more important in the future.
0: Great. Thank you, Will Hayward. We have about a minute and a half each for Amy Freed and Ralph Chapman.
2: I I look to the future, and I'm hopeful that uh, the uh, people uh, citizenry will recognize that they have a very important role in being informed and being active and and being civically engaged. Uh, I encourage everyone to find ways to be civically engaged. Uh, I've always encouraged people to vote, um, but I've always also indicated that voting is is simply a, a first step and that there are many ways to become more involved and it doesn't have to, be. it can be at a very local level, it can be um, at, at, a, at, a, at a larger level, but uh, wherever one's own comfort and uh, sensibilities lie for becoming involved, I encourage that very strongly.
0: Okay, thank you. Former State Representative Ralph Chapman and final word, Professor Amy Freed.
1: I agree with a. A lot of what's been said already, and I would say that we owe a lot of gratitude to state and local election officials, all the people who worked on uh, campaigns, who worked on making the elections happen. And I would encourage people to go uh, listen to President-elect Biden's speech from last night if you didn't hear it because he talked about the resilience of democracy, but he also wasn't afraid to call out what's go, what's been going on. And I think that kind of directness and uh, from elected officials, I think is very important. He did it in a careful way, laying out cases and numbers of cases and that, that had been decided. So it, it's, it wasn't just sort of broad rhetoric, uh, but uh, you know, I. Certainly, we have to find ways also to come together across our lines of differences.
0: Great. Thank you very much. And you've been listening to the final Elections 2020 edition of Maine Currents here on WERUFM. And I'd like to again just thank all of these guests who've been here with us uh, through the months as we discuss this. I hate the word unprecedented. We need to retire that word, but as we discuss this. Um, fill-in-the-blank election season. Uh, Professor Amy Freed, chair of the political science department at the University of Maine, former state representative Ralph Chapman, Ann Luther, board member for the League of Women Voters of Maine, and host of the Democracy Forum here on WERU, and Will Hayward, advocacy program coordinator for the League of Women Voters. And Main Currents will continue in our regular time slot on the first Tuesday of each month at four for more independent local news, views, and culture. But as I said, be sure to also check out the Democracy Forum on the third Friday of every month at four. And our locally produced news and public affairs programs are also archived at weru.org. So if you missed one, you can go and listen anytime. I'm Amy Brown. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for Radio EcoShock coming up next here on Community Radio WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and streaming online at WERU.org.